Thanks for tuning in to Best Show Ever, a podcast presented by the Englert Theater. On today's episode, we talk with experimental composer Christine Berg about her recent and upcoming collaborations. We also hear from longtime Iowa City Fire Chief John Greer about his storied career as a first responder and his Best Show Ever experience. This is our last episode of season three, but we'll be back next year with more artists, interviews, and community engagements. So don't you go missing us. Christine Burke is an instrumentalist and composer. She plays clarinet and piano, among many other instruments, including household objects. Today, we'll talk a bit about one of her recent performances, Phosphorence and Sympathy, which took place in the Public Space One front porch slash garden area earlier this year. The work featured Christine's ensemble of Justin Comer, Gabby Vanek, Ramin Rushendal, Laura Canelo-Cohen, and Lex Lido, playing a variety of instruments and objects in response to their surroundings. Christine Burke, it is so lovely to meet you on the internet and to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Likewise. So I, if you're cool with this, I would like to use phosphorus and sympathy as a case study to kind of explore your creative process a little bit. Yeah. So you feel good about that? Okay. So if you could just start at the beginning of when you were conceptualizing this project, what ideas did you want to explore? Were you thinking about the audience? Just what were those early musings? Yeah. So I initially proposed this work at least two years ago. It was definitely pre-pandemic. I proposed it for Public Space Ones. They're doing like just a call for proposals for works in their space on the porch um, or outside. And I honestly cannot remember if this was an idea that came about as a result of that or if it was an idea I had before. I'm leaning towards the latter. I believe it was an idea (laughs) I'd had for a while, but it was just something that I hadn't had the opportunity to do mainly because most of the things I was doing were inside and like concert hall spaces and stuff. So when they put out the call and they were saying, Oh, we really actually would like to use the porch and the lawn space. It was like, Oh great. That will work well then. The main idea behind phosphorescent sympathy is that the performers will be sitting outside, listening to the environment around them, and that all of their musical material is going to come about as a result of the things that are happening around them, both visually and um, things they hear. And because that can be such a wide variety of things, like I spend a lot of time around public space one just sitting outside and listening and watching, and it's like you get a pretty good idea of what might happen, but you can't plan for every eventuality. Going into the first rehearsal, everybody I was working with, all the performers, were so willing to explore that concept that everything just went one step further in terms of like, like everybody was really ready to be attentive to what was going on around them, looking for certain ways of interacting, especially timbrely. Like I think people were matching certain sounds really well uh, and in that sense kind of amplifying them. So. My point in saying all of that was whatever initial ideas I had for the piece were just so greatly expounded upon in the performance that it ended up being something that I I couldn't have come up with myself. 
And that is mm. really cool. That's like my favorite thing to happen in a, in a performance is when the performers are like so there with you that it's just going to get bigger than itself. Ah, yeah, absolutely. That part of collaboration is un unbeatable. Exactly. So as something that's interesting about you as a composer is that you're not always writing things down, you know, using notes and the staff and scales <laughs> and what, you know, whatever music stuff. Yeah. Um, you're using text words and graphics. Mm -hmm. So what, what did these scores look like for this performance? How were you telling your musicians what to play? Yeah. So the score for this was, it was mostly text, just giving them some basic parameters of the kind of sounds that could be made. Um, which in this case was very wide. I think I said, I divided it up into things you can see and things you can hear. And so on the graphic part of the score, there was an eye and there was a little ear. And those were just divided into 10 minute sections. So the first 10 minutes was reacting to things you see. The second 10 minutes was reacting to things you hear. And that just kind of repeated throughout the hour. We divided everyone up into two groups. So the first group was starting with things you see. The second group was starting with things you hear. So there would have been, you know, theoretically a balance of that throughout. Um, so that was the graphic part of the score. And then the text instructions just said, you know, if it's um, when you're reacting to things you see, it's like if you see a person, you're going to play a long tone of any note you wish. And then when you're reacting to things you hear, it's like you have a collection of objects with you and you're going to use those to imitate a cricket or the cricket was definitely a favorite <laughs> uh, cricket <laughs> car driving by. Um, Justin had a radio. So he was going to be turning that on and off if he heard a car radio or a boombox or whatever. And I think in, in performance, we probably had the time scores in front of us that had the graphic part just to keep track of where we were. But otherwise, I don't think we were even looking at the score as much in performance. It was more of a like internalize the concept. And then for this hour, that's just what you'll be doing. Hmm. I just love that idea because I think when most people th hear the word composer, we do think about it in like this very formal, structured sense, music <laughs> theory, you know, yeah. the, the, the educated mm -hmm. composers, but it's, it can be broken down a lot more than that. And it can just be ideas of ways to put sounds together like you did with this piece that I think was really cool. And your musicians were pretty much all trained instrumentalists, mm -hmm. but hypothetically it could have been anyone yeah, uh, performing with this piece, which is also really cool. When I'll say even, so Ramin was playing a melodica uh, when he was doing the, the pitch part of the piece. And that's basically just a, for those listening, it's just like a little piano with a, um, a uh, little tube attached to it and you blow in through the tube and you can just press the keys down and it makes whatever pitch you're pressing which anybody could do so Ramin doesn't play melodica like professionally or anything but he was able to just you know pick it up and do that so I mean you could have done a harmonica honestly or a kazoo even yeah I yeah. think Gabby was doing a kazoo oh yeah she was <laughs> That was hilarious. <laughs> there was a kazoo. There was a stapler. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, I think Justin might have had a duck call thing. 
That sounds about right. So it, yeah, it was it was very fun and it was not boastful or it was it was simple and beautiful mm-hmm. and very present. You could feel how the musicians were present and so focused into their surroundings that everyone else kind of started doing the same thing and it was really cool to be everyone in that space at the same time with a group of people like that that that's great to hear yeah that that was definitely the goal and it was like the perfect night for it too I remember the weather being just gorgeous yeah (laughs) it was so beautiful it was such a beautiful memory memory Mm -hmm. now in my mind what do you think the musicians get out of you know doing a project like this that's maybe a bit different from what they're typically doing one of the goals of the piece for us was to exist at this equal level to the environmental sounds and happenings that were going on mm-hmm. around us. And I think it worked. I believe for all the performers too, like that, that goal happened um, to be present among everything like that. And it was just a very special feeling. I really like the improvisational aspect and kind of just the underlying condition of what you hear is based off of us tuning into the universe, which I think is interesting because I feel like when I'm performing, I'm pretty much just in my own head. I feel other people's energy in the room as mm-hmm. a performer, but I'm not intentionally reacting to what's going on around me. So that's kind of like the exact opposite, <laughs> which is really cool. It's an interesting space to be in because I think you can do both of those things that you just said simultaneously whether you're aware of it or not. And it's very, having just done it myself with the solo piano piece, it was like very, I felt very, very vulnerable the whole time. Partially because it's like I have to stick to the rule I made in order to, you know, do the piece correctly or whatever, which might not be so important, but. Yeah, rules are cool sometimes. What is your experience like doing avant-garde material in a small Midwestern town? I, I love it here. I think any performance I've done here that's been, you know, like Feed Me Weird Things or I Hear I See or at Public Space One, somebody I don't know always comes up and has something to say about what they just heard. And that's like just so awesome. I mean, I'm just so grateful for that. It seems like there's a community here that's actually very engaged and interested in that kind of music. And I couldn't ask for anything more than that even just one person it's just like cool that's so awesome that you were interested in this and that it was enjoyable for you yeah I feel like Iowa City is the perfect place for people who like have reasonable expectations or see the beauty in one person coming up after the show yeah people who really appreciate one deep engagement one really deep connection rather than like 30 Mm-hmm. maybe shallow ones I don't yeah. know yeah yeah I agree I, it's very unpretentious I think yeah yeah absolutely is, I mean and just the like the general musical community around here too it's just like I can't believe it sometimes <laughs> it's, it's so great okay speaking of so you're working on several different projects at the moment um and one of them is going to be performing at Mission Creek yes. 2022 can you talk a little bit about what that project is and what people can expect from the performance in April? Absolutely. I am very excited about this project. Um, a few months ago, I think, so in September, we played at Public Space One. 
Shortly after that, Mission Creek said, hey, we're going to be taking submissions from everyone, so send us your stuff. And I think Lex and I were in the same building at the same time and, like, both texted each other about it. We're like, let's do something together. <laughs> so we got together. And so Lex is a singer-songwriter as well as a flutist and does many other wonderful artistic things. Lex came over to my house. She showed me some songs she was working on or had that were either complete or partially complete. And we just started making plans to essentially orchestrate those with the Christine Burke ensemble, but with the experimental music thing put in there as well. I think from there, we just, we met a few times and worked on it in that way, going from both ends of either we were looking at what Lex had already written and then trying to find something to fit that. Or I was like, hey, here's this idea that I want to try. Does anything you have fit with that? Hmm. And that's how we've been making these songs. And as far as what people can expect, I think you're going to hear something that you can sing along to, and it's going to be very weird at the same time. Yeah, this has been so much fun, and I am so excited to share it with everyone. Yeah, I think it's so special because it does bring the the singer-songwriter world and the avant-garde world together in a way that people can digest who don't like I don't listen to a lot of avant-garde music mm-hmm. but I listen to a whole lot of singer-songwriter music so it feels like a- an easier step for someone like me to be like oh but there's this really weird stuff happening mm-hmm. and there's this noise happening and like I don't have anything to compare it to in my musical vocabulary I've never seen anything like it personally awesome. so yeah I'm way stoked to see Lex Lido and the Christine Burke ensemble live in action thank you hopefully before April I think I think it's likely yeah we're we realized like yeah we're going to need to perform a few times before we perform at Mission Creek well um on behalf of everyone super stoked to see what y'all are up to, what you're up to as an artist uh, in the coming months and years. And thank you again for sharing a little bit with us today on the pod. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We'll be right back in conversation with John Greer after a quick word from our development director, Katie Roche. Did you know that you could be promoting your business, organization, or event to Best Show Ever podcast listeners by placing an ad here on the show? Sponsoring Best Show Ever or other Inglert programming ties your brand to a local legacy, the Inglert Theater, and your support of the Inglert now means more than ever before. In 2020, we experienced a significant revenue shortfall brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Through this financially tumultuous time, we're producing new digital productions, including this podcast, our Stages Concert Series, and Witching Hour Festival, all to inspire positive community growth through the arts. Packages range from $100 on up. Our investment in the arts community is only possible with support from sponsors like you and art supporters are known for supporting those that support the arts. Visit englert.org sponsorship for all of the information about how to advertise. I mean, you're listening right now. Place your ad here, englert.org sponsorship. John Greer is the chief of the Iowa City Fire Department. After spending almost 30 years with this department, 
John is set to retire February 11th of 2022 with a subsequent move to be closer to his family in Florida. John also spent over 20 years as a part-time paramedic with the Johnson County Ambulance Service. John, thank you so much for being here on the Best Show Ever podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So uh, you have spent almost 30 years with the Iowa City Fire Department, over 20 years as a part-time paramedic with the Johnson County Ambulance Service. That's a lot of time served in two pretty high-intensity fields. What do you enjoy most about being a first responder, and what is the most challenging aspect for you? Uh, The most enjoyable, I always relate this to people, is that we go on a similar call, you know, all the time. You know, we go on a certain medical call or a certain fire call, those sorts of things. But every time we go, it's usually somebody different. So even though it's the same type of incident, it can turn out so totally different because of the people involved. So Hmm. I've always enjoyed that part of it, of, you know, always trying to figure out the approach with that particular incident and that particular person or the particular circumstances of that call. So I've always enjoyed that part about it. Uh, Early on in my career, the good part of not being from Iowa City was that I did not know a lot of the people that I would go on calls, or I didn't know their family or their friends and that sort of thing. But uh, after being here 30 years or so, a lot of those folks I do know now. So that would probably be my least favorite part of the job is uh, going on a call that of somebody that I knew or I knew their family, and then having to relate some sort of uh, information to that family if I had to. Right. Yeah, not to just take you all the way there right off the bat, but I have a friend who is uh, an EMT and hearing her stories, it's can be, you know, pretty intense. Um, being a first responder, being in so many situations that have to do with tragedy, that have to do with death, um, what is what are the emotional burdens like for you as a first responder and how do you cope with them? I think I think everybody copes with them a little differently. You know, I think early on in my career, I just like like every person, I you know, you shove it to the little part and you close the door, and you don't you don't think about it or talk about it. Uh, you know, as I've certainly matured, we we now know that talking about it actually helps. So I think uh, that's been a good part of uh, the career change for us, is in, at least in you know emergency services, to be able to talk about those things. So. I think t- being able to talk about it with your your coworkers, uh, your your friends. Obviously, you're not sharing any pertinent information, but your family, you know, your spouse, uh, you know, your therapist. You know, uh, mental health counseling has come a long way. You know, I right out of college, that was my my degree was in uh, mental health counseling, so I did that before I got on the fire department. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's become much more acceptable in society in general and in the fire department in particular. Mm, yeah, that is good to hear that there's progress there. I remember my friend telling me after a scenario, there was like a grief meeting or sure. grief counselor who was there. And that was kind of a relief as her friend to know that that is something that's uh, being looked at by the institution, not something she just has to deal with by herself. Yeah. Critical incident stress debriefing is pretty common these days. That's that's the catchphrase, so. Mm, and there's gotcha. there's teams located around the area, so we have that opportunity to do a debrief and talk about it while it's fresh. And then if you need some follow up, that's also available. 
Uh, this might be toughy, um, but are there any particular moments in your career that really stick out as being meaningful or impactful to your life? Oh, wow. That is a toughie. Yeah, I hit you with it. <laughs> no prep on that one either. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, each thing you do has a milestone. And I, I remember my first fire here like it was yesterday. It was at 319 East Davenport. It was, you know, early in the morning, a little fire in a house up in the attic. I remember crawling up there and putting it out. You know, I, I still can see myself going on that call in my brain every day. So, I mean, there's, I mean, there's certainly th those highs you remember, and there's, there's a, there's a lot of lows that are associated with some of the incidents that we've been involved in, but uh, nothing in particular that I, I dwell on for that. You know, I recognize what they are, what they are, and they were part of my experience. But uh, yeah, so lots, lots of good uh, times here. Awesome. Uh, a little bit of a different take on that. I've learned that firefighters uh, get calls for many things, not relating to fires even maybe too many things definitely too many things um is there a silliest call award cat in a tree sort of situation well we have had some cat in the tree calls for sure okay. you know and we it's vacillated over the years how much uh staff time you put into those things because most cats do come down but i mean we have uh, you know helped get those those down we've helped you know with deer stuck in the uh, river in the ice, you know, that sort of thing. So a mm. uh, little bit of that, but you're right. We do go on all, all sorts of calls, you know, a lot of, I've been, you know, trying to get into my apartment. So we might help them through a balcony or something like that, you know, just a little bit of everything. But uh, the thing is when people call, it's certainly not a silly call to them. So we treat them all as an important call, you know, and uh, we always, well, part of the saying here is that, you know, you're, meeting a person on their worst day. Anytime mm. they're calling us, it's usually, it's their worst day. And now that varies from, you know, the smallest little thing to their house is on fire, obviously, but it's always their their worst day. So our, our plan is to treat them like we know it's their worst day and we are there to help them. So mm. yeah, lots, lots of good calls over the years, for sure. I was kind of wondering if the cat in the tree was like an urban myth or just like a you know, a storytelling thing, but <laughs> no, it does, it does happen. It, it does happen. We do get those calls every once in a while. Let's talk about a different best uh, experience, the best show ever. Go ahead and just give us the skinny on what this experience was like, who was there, where it was at, and why uh, you loved it so much. Yeah, my best show ever is a pretty personal one for me. You know, I got, uh, I struggled with trying to decide which which thing to talk about because you know in my years like I, I mentioned i've done a lot of things and i got to go to a lot of concerts around town and you know uh, working for the johnson county email service so i got to see a lot of shows and be a lot of things but when i sat down and thought about it, the one that came to mind for me uh that probably had the most i guess emotional impact on me would would have been when i got to go see my youngest son greg or i always call him gregory perform improv stand-up comedy in Iowa City at the Treehouse here on South Gilbert Street. Little venue, kind of tucked away. He uh, he was finishing up his college career at Iowa. He, I don't know how he met the folks in the improv group, but he got into this improv group and 
he told us that he was going to go do stand-up comedy. And I was immediately so proud for him for trying it and immediately scared to death for him. Yeah. Yeah. As, as a father, I wanted him to do awesome. And I was happy for him expanding her, his horizons. But I was also afraid that he would get up there and it wouldn't go go well. I, I I'd never seen him perform, so I didn't know. But, you know, I, I just immediately went to how I would feel like, oh, my gosh. You know, like every meeting I've, you know, chaired or every class I've taught, you always think, oh, how's it going? You know, and sometimes you feel really good about it. And sometimes you don't. And I wanted him to have a, a good experience. But it was uh, in that treehouse uh, uh, venue. And uh, they just put up fold up chairs and they had a stage that had built they had built in there. And. The chairs filled up and it was standing room only in there. I think they did, you know, a set and then intermission and then a second set. And I'm sure it was killing him, but he was, I think, the first performer after the intermission. So he had all that time to sit and think, <laughs> you mm. know, about, oh, you know, how's this going to go? And I, you know, like I said, I was nervous for him, but uh, he, he was a rock star. He got up and he, he, I thought, you know, what's his approach? Because I'd never seen him. He didn't really tell jokes. He was more of a, a story kind of comedian. Mm-hmm. And it, he told a, a couple stories about, you know, when he was a kid. He made fun of his mother and I. We had recently been divorced Woo! six months before. And he uh, he made fun of us and talked about how it helped get him into therapy to <laughs> understand himself a little bit better, you know, and it, it was fun because uh, I was there. Uh, my ex-wife was there. Uh, my girlfriend was there and her boyfriend was there. And then his uh, brother and sister were there too. So it was, it was kind of a, a neat experience for us all to be in the same room. And it is crazy that divorced people can get along, you know, mm-hmm. and we, we get along well and we got along well that night for Gregory. But uh, so, yeah, he made fun of us there sitting in the crowd. But wow, no, it, it went really well. I can relate to your fear a little bit, A, because I think stand up comedy is the most terrifying thing in the world. And I'm a performer. And I'm like, no, I would never, ever, ever do that. That makes me want to die just thinking about it. And two, my partner tried doing stand up. And as soon as he told me that was something he was going to do, I was like, I don't know if I can even come <laughs> because if you tank, that's going to be so painful for all of us yeah. involved. Um, but the improv groups at the University of Iowa are insanely good. Yeah, there were some very funny folk. I mean, they had you had the person that was up there just very straightforward, you know, very quiet and monotone. And then you had the one with all the props and you had, I mean, you had the gambit of uh, different types of approaches to comedy. And I thought, these kids, you know, kids to me, uh, these kids have more guts than I ever had at their age, or probably that I have now, you know, to get up there and just put yourself out there. It was awesome. Seeing seeing him after the show and his face, and I mean, as a father, you know, certainly made me feel awesome. Hmm. so very proud of him and he ended up doing another show in the spring and went and saw that one too same group of us still getting along <laughs> he he really enjoyed it and he had talked about you know oh maybe i want to do this a little bit more and he was going to try to go somewhere where comedy was more uh 
prevalent. You had more opportunities to do it. And then like everybody else's life came to a crashing halt, COVID hit. So mm. that kind of went away. Hmm. Also, I should note that just how the, the power of one good joke to suck so much of the tenseness or uh, darkness around a situation. Like one good joke about divorced parents with your divorced parents in the crowd can do so much for literally your relationships. It's an it's an incredible tool in that way. So yeah, it was fun. That. Everybody got a good chuckle out of it. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing that wonderful best show ever experience. I'm so glad you chose improv because I love improv. Um, and also for your, in general, your service to the Iowa City community as a first responder um, on behalf of the Englert. You know, we really appreciate the work you've done here. So thank you so much. Well, thank, thank, thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a good experience doing this show. Uh, I had the same nerves that I'm sure I was thinking my son had. But you, you made it very pain, painless and enjoyable, oh. and I, I appreciate that. And, yeah, like I said, I'm going to miss Iowa City, but certainly had a, a great time here and uh, have certainly, certainly wonderful fond memories of the Iowa City Fire Department and the folks mm. that I've worked with here over the years. Mm, I'm sure you will be missed. So. Uh, thanks. Our song of the week is 47 by Terry Underhill. Terry is a songwriter, musician, and dancer based out of my hometown, Norwalk, Iowa. The song comes from her debut album, Salt and Citrus, which can be found wherever you stream music. Here's the song 47 by Terry Underhill.
Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit inglert.org friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, and by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peer United States Regional Arts Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.